0: to there's like Y'all can have a seat. Cool, thank you guys so much for coming out very often. Valentine's, um, it's, a, it's a special night to be here. We're going to talk about that in a, in a minute. But um, so, if you've been with us, we're doing a series through the life of Peter, and we're basically looking at the life of Peter. And part of why I love doing this series, why well, I've loved it so far, is it's basically a way to look at um, Peter through the eyes of Jesus, but also a way to look at Jesus through the eyes of Peter. And um, tonight we get to look at one of the most painful, <clears throat> honestly, probably the most painful part of Peter's life is when he denies Jesus. Um, and so I want to dive into this a little bit tonight. To do that, I want to read. You have it in your handout, two passages, one from Luke 22 um, and then one from John 21. This is basically Peter's uh, fall and then how Jesus restores him. That's what we're looking at tonight. Basically, what we're talking about is that, that your greatest failures, the places in your life even right now where you feel like you're failing or have failed, are no match for the unfailing love of Jesus. And there's a lot of good news for us tonight. And I really do think um, it's funny to preach this on Valentine's because I think this really is the love behind the love that we're looking for. This really is the love that even, earthly love is a beautiful thing. I've been married, you know, what, 13 years? I met my wife 16 years ago on this campus, and I love her. She is in so many ways the rock of my life, and yet uh, the, her love is not unfailing. Uh, her love is imperfect. My love to her is imperfect, and I think the love that our hope, our love points to is the love of Jesus that we're really going to look at in this beautiful, hard but beautiful place in Peter's life tonight. So Luke 22. It's a bit of a long passage to bear with me. I'm going to read it. Starting at Luke 22. uh, Then seizing him, that's Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. but But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. And a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. And she looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said... You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another reply, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with them, for he's a Galilean. And Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, as Jesus had predicted. And the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter, Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will descend me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And then flash forward to John's gospel. Peter, in his failure, has gone back to fishing. And the scene, we talked about it a few weeks ago, the scene is, because he's lost it, he's pretty sure he's lost Jesus. And he's pretty sure he's lost the love of Jesus. So he goes back to what he knows, which is fishing. And he's out in the boat with his friends. And here's the way it goes, the second part of that, John 21. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. They saw this guy on the, on the beach who had told him to cast down the nets. And they caught 153 fish. It is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they had landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish in it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. And Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 But even with so many, the net was not torn. Um, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. That's like my favorite. I think this is my favorite line of Jesus. Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. This is the risen Jesus. And Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. Jesus said, "Feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. and then he said to him, Follow me. I'm pray for us, and then I want to dive into what I want to talk about tonight. Let's pray first. <clears throat> um, Jesus, we thank you that you um, give us these stories. Um, first, about Peter, um, his incredible, painful um, failure, the way he denied you three times and, and wept bitterly as you looked at him across that courtyard by that fire. And yet, where we thank you that you didn't leave Peter there. You didn't leave us there. You also show us that place on that beach where you first met Peter, where you restored him three times, reminding him of your love for him, reminding him of his love for you. Lord, I pray that as we look at this story tonight, the sadness and the beauty of the gospel, the the hard part of our sinfulness, and yet the incredible, true, comforting parts of your grace, would you be with us? Would you preach to us? Would you meet us in our own failures? Um, And would you remind us of the greatness of your unfailing love? We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. So I was thinking, I usually take a little walk around campus uh, before I preach. And I was thinking about, the, this is uh, literally Valentine's Day, 16 years ago. It was the first date I ever went on with my wife. And we met. We had met uh, junior year, 2001. And um, <clears throat> I had asked her at a party, hey, she, her birthday is the 13th. So I said, hey, if you don't have anyone taking you out for your birthday, I would love to take you out for your birthday. I think her birthday was like a Sunday night. We went out on a Monday night, but it was Valentine's. And it was funny because when I went to get my car that night, this is what I mainly remember. When I went to get my car that night, uh, I got to my passenger door of my '92 Camry, and the pass—I mean the driver's door—and the driver's door would not open. And I was like, "Uh, this is going to be great." So I'd like get in through the passenger door, and I was trying to think, how can I do this with Alyssa? Like, I'm going to obviously open her door for her, but then I've got to like crawl in, you know? Which <laughs> so we just embraced it, ended up being a great icebreaker, and then we went to Zaz, which has apparently gone way downhill. It was awesome back then. And I had our first date, but I was thinking about it, it was a, it was like a, a dating fail. It ended up being great. we got married. It took a while. Um, but I was thinking there were other fails in our relationship, right There were much more serious places of failure where literally things that were so such a struggle for us that we took a break while we were engaged to just repent and seek Jesus and The question I have for tonight is what, what do you do when you when you fail? What do you do when you fall? What do you do when you, when you mess up? What do you do? when you fail. And I think this story from the life of Peter is really um, instructive and helpful in so many ways. And the way I want to do it is simply kind of pretty simple. I just want to talk about first why Peter failed Jesus. Second, I want to talk about how Jesus loved Peter in that failure. And then lastly, I just want to say, what does it mean for us? That's all I want to do. So first, why Peter failed Jesus. Second, <clears throat> how Jesus loved him in his failure. And then lastly, what do we do with this? So first, think with me tell you a little bit about why Peter failed Jesus. And the first thing you got to see is he denied him. The three times is important because three times, any time you find it in the Bible, it's just a number of completion. Like when, when something happens three times, it is complete. It is full. So Peter denied him so completely. You see it. He was asked those three questions. Aren't you one of his disciples? Didn't I see you with him? And he's so upset that even by the third time that he literally, in the Greek, he cusses at them. He just says, no, strong language. I don't know him. And the first thing we've got to see is there's nothing cool, part of what Peter's doing is there's nothing cool about associating with Jesus. Like, the love of Jesus is behind the love that you're looking for. It's the love behind every love. In every Nicholas Sparks book or movie we've read or seen, this is the true love we're looking for. And yet, we have to come to terms with, there was part of, of being involved and associated with Jesus that's hard. Like, Jesus has just been seized. He's going to go die on a cross, following Jesus. At the end of the passage, Jesus is warning Peter, I love you. I know that you love me follow me, but you have to understand that following me is going to lead to this. Literally, he was crucified upside down. His death was worse than Jesus's in some ways. There's nothing cool about associating with Jesus. And Peter, in this moment, you have to understand, crave the approval of these people. He didn't even know more than the approval of the one who knew him before he was born. And it's the same for us, isn't it? Isn't it hard sometimes to associate with Jesus? Isn't it hard sometimes, or isn't it easy to crave someone's approval, even here more than we crave the love and approval of Jesus? So first, he denies him so completely, but why does he do it? That's what really I'm asking. Why does he deny him? And I want you to see it was because he was so proud. <clears throat> he denied him so completely because he was so proud. Well, when we think about pride, we talked about it a few weeks ago. I think we typically think of peacock kind of pride, where you're sort of strutting around arrogantly, kind of cocky. But I want you to see there are always two aspects of pride that Peter fulfills, and, and he fulfills both. Pride always comes out in two ways. It always either comes out in self-confidence, where you really are full of yourself. And if you don't think you're full of yourself, maybe ask a friend, say, hey, am I the kind of guy that seems full of myself or the kind of girl who seems full of herself? Self-confidence is one way, and that's the peacock kind of way that we typically think of. But there are also the, the pendulum swing of pride that we see Peter go through is there's also what we can call self-despair or self-pity, where he goes out and weeps bitterly. That's the tension, right? Peter, we didn't read this passage. But we could go back. When, when Jesus tells him the first time, you're going to deny me three times, Peter says this. He says, though they all fall away, Jesus, I will never fall away. That's arrogance. That's the self-confidence. He had confidence in himself. But then you see when he fails, he doesn't know what to do with it, so he wept bitterly. And literally, he goes and leaves and weeps bitterly. <clears throat> I love the way that Richard Winter, he wrote this beautiful book on Perfectionism, he says it like this. He says, If I search around long enough, I'll find insecurity beneath my grandiosity and arrogant expectations beneath my self-contempt. How is pride working itself out in your life right now? Is it self-confidence? Are you full of yourself? Or is it self-pity? Are you sad for yourself all the time? Uh, no one gets this better, I think, than Flannery O'Connor. She's one of my favorite writers. And she wrote this, uh, one of her lesser-known short stories is called The Turkey. And in it, this, this kid who's probably 12, 13, his name is Ruler. All he wants to do, he's set in this rural setting, and he's filled, he's the kind of kid who's filled with fantasies, and he thinks he's really special. He's kind of full of himself, and he just wants everyone to see how special he is. And so he's walking through town one day, and he sees his opportunity. He sees this turkey that's been shot. He didn't shoot it, but it's been shot. And it's so wounded that he can catch it pretty easily. So Ruler goes, and he catches this turkey, and he puts it on his shoulder, and he starts Fantasizing about how cool he's going to look in this rural town carrying this turkey and how he's going to claim that he shot it. He's going to claim that he's going to feed his family with it. So he's walking through town with this turkey on his back, just really full of himself, kind of puffed up. <clears throat> and then this group of kids comes up, group of peers, and he thinks, oh, they've come to admire my turkey, how I shot it, what I'm going to do with it. And they come around and they start kind of complimenting him. They ask if they could see it. And then they ask if they could hold the turkey. And they... Take the turkey and they steal the turkey. And Ruler is crushed because he realizes all his fantasies of of being special are fading away and he's got nothing to show anyone. And O'Connor ends the story like this She says, He turned toward home, almost creeping. He walked four blocks and then suddenly, noticing that it was dark, he began to run. And he ran faster and faster as he turned up the road to his house. His heart was running as fast as his legs, and he was certain that, s- capitalized, something awful was tearing behind him with its arms rigid and its fingers ready to clutch. And any time ever, I've ever seen anyone analyze a story, they say that something awful is the truth. You know, O'Connor's got that, got that great line where she says that the truth doesn't change according to our ability to stomach it. And what, which, what, what O'Connor is saying with Ruler is that he couldn't stand the truth of who he was. Therefore, the truth of who God was wasn't attracted to him. The truth of his nothingness was in pot crushed him. Therefore, the truth of Jesus' everythingness wasn't attractive to him. So how do you know if you're proud? <clears throat> how do you know if you're like Peter, with full of self-confidence or full of self-pity? How do you know? Here's a couple of ways, just three. Number one, you compare yourself to everyone constantly all the time. That can be everything from your looks to your dress to like your friend group to what you do to why you're special. You just are constantly comparing yourself all the time. Let me tell you, ministry doesn't absolve you from that. I am constantly comparing myself to other RAF campus ministers. My preaching, my small group ability, my one-on-one ability, my gathering a crowd ability, all of it. I'm constantly, my ability to raise money, which is not strong, uh, all of it, I'm constantly comparing. And when I catch myself doing it, it's a moment of pride. And I'm, Jesus is calling me to repent and bring that, the sin of pride to him. Or... You despair. You compare or you despair. Um, I remember going and driving. When I lived in Statesboro, I was doing RUF at Georgia Southern. I would drive over to Augusta, Georgia to meet with his counselor because Statesboro, small town. Think Clemson, but less cool. Um, Whether You might not think Clemson's cool. Um, That's beside the point. Anyways, I would drive over to Augusta, meet with his counselor. I remember one time vividly him looking at me. I was really depressed, and he said to me, Sammy, do you realize you're sad because you're not perfect? Do you realize that? And that's the thing, Winter's trying to say, that a lot of times behind our self-contempt are these arrogant expectations. And one that I carry is what you could call defeated perfectionism, where I really do think I should have the resources and the ability to be perfect, to be perfectly likable, to be perfectly successful, to be perfect um, in, in every way. But then the third one, the way that you know it, is lack of prayer. Uh, we're reading through this book. Uh, we're doing it Monday nights now. A Praying Life by Paul Miller. And he's got this great line that I've always loved. He says, if you're not praying, you are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. And what I think is interesting, I never thought about this before, but right before, do you remember right before this moment with Peter, where they were? Do you remember Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he's asked his best friends to come pray with him? And you remember what happens? They like fall asleep within minutes the first time and Jesus is literally, Luke says, sweating drops of blood he's so stressed out and he comes back a second time says will you please pray pray for me just stay awake drink some coffee just you know do what you need to do stay awake and pray for me please i'm pleading with the father and he goes away again comes back and they're asleep again peter you can tell part of his pride was this complete lack of prayer so first peter his failure I, i don't know what your failure is like i can tell you that there's failure in your past maybe that you're not aware of maybe that you're painfully aware of. There's failure in maybe in your present where you're, you're involved in something or struggling with something that you don't want anyone to know about, but you feel the failure, the weight of it. Or there's, I can tell you, I promise you, there's failure in your future where you're gonna go astray. You, we are those sheep that constantly go astray and each to our own way. I don't know where you're failing, but we relate to the failure of Peter. But then second, I want you to think about how Jesus loved Peter in the face of his failure. And there are just a couple of ways that he loved him. Here's the first. He loved him incredibly patiently. Um, Jesus really wanted to teach Peter. This is his life's work. It, it went on beyond this moment. Like his life's work with Peter, his life's work with us, is to teach us these two important lessons. And they are both humility and hope. The humility that shrinks us down. I, I love G.K. Chesterton's got this, right, this great line where he says, how, how big my life would be if I could only be smaller in it. But I think when I think about myself, I'm like if you've ever looked at those, you get that pre, you know those cotton T-shirts that are pre-shrunk. You can't shrink them anymore, and I feel like that's how we are a lot of times. You can't. We we're, we have this inability to be shrunk down, and yet Jesus is committed to shrinking you. He's committed to humbling you um, through a through a variety of ways, but also he's calling you to a way of hope. Peter won't. Jesus will not let Peter go back to his former way of life. He is teaching. Peter, as many times as he falls, Jesus is going to be there to pick him up again and put him in this new path and this new calling that he's given to him. He won't let Peter go back to his old life and neither, hear this, neither will he let Peter's old life satisfy him. That's huge for us to get. Some of us became Christians rather recently And we have this vision of things that used to comfort us. And I promise you, part of Jesus' work in your life is to frustrate the ways that you used to find comfort in these things to the point where you cannot continue to find comfort. You know you've got to leave them behind and give them up. And yet, look how patient Jesus is with Peter. Jesus is going to continue to be patient. Please hear me. Jesus, no one is more patient with you in your struggles. No one is more patient with you in your failure than Jesus. He has infinite amount of patience. He has an infinite amount of patience for you. But then also, part of what's beautiful about how Jesus loves him is he loves him very personally. There are two kind of parts of the context of this passage that are really, really sweet if you notice them. Here's the first one. Notice that Jesus meets Peter in John 21 at the very place he first called him. It's the Sea of Galilee. It's the sea right by Tiberias. And Peter could not have missed that. That Jesus restores him out of his failure in the very place that he met Jesus for the first time in his life. There's a, a personal sweetness that Jesus brings in this. Think about Jonah. When, when, when it, you know, There's that line in Jonah where Jonah runs away. And there's that beautiful line in Jonah where it says, And the grace of God came to Jonah a second time. And we can say, and a third time. And a fourth time. And a fifth time. And a sixth time, and a seventh time, and an eighth time, and an infinite amount of times, the grace of Jesus is always, he's coming back to you with it. But then the second personal detail is it's really fascinating. John gets us in, in this chapter where there are only two places that's really weird. You notice in, when Peter denies Jesus, what does he buy? He's by this fire. And then when Jesus restores him, what does he do it by? He does it by this fire. And John, the way he, he does it is you can't miss. It's this, this specific kind of fire. It's a charcoal fire that Peter denies him around. And it's a charcoal fire that Jesus is cooking breakfast for, by when he invites Peter into that conversation and restores him. What I want you to see that, that the sin in the first fire was absolutely quenched and covered by the grace in the second fire. We say this all the time in our life. Your sin is no match for the grace of Jesus. There's always more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. But don't miss too that Jesus cooks some breakfast. (laughs) I'm like, I'm not kidding. That's my favorite line from Jesus. (laughs) Come and have breakfast. Like, can we just stop for a second and imagine Jesus greeting us in the new heavens and the new earth and he says to us, come and have breakfast with me. I've got waffles. I've got biscuits. You like pancakes? I've got this. You like hash browns? Yeah, makes Waffle Houses look like nothing compared to my hash browns. You like bacon? You like so you're a sausage guy? I'm, I could literally just keep going. I'm not going. I'm not going to. But like Waffle House with Jesus, but like better? Does it get better than that? Um, but Jesus loves them in this really human way. I don't want you to for real. I'm joking, but I'm not joking. He loves them. He meets them. In this really humble, beautiful, physical way By cooking, he's not above cooking breakfast for them He's not above serving them In this way And then he loves them very powerfully um, You know The question that gets weird in this passage is when, when Jesus says, do you love me more than these What does he mean? And there are kind of three options Does, does it mean Do you love me more than the rest of these guys do? Uh, do you love me More than you love these friends? Or do you love me more than you love these fish, like this trade, this thing that you know? And I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure. But maybe all three? Because I think we can say when you begin to grasp the love of Jesus, it does all, works in all three of those ways. Uh, we're, or, of course, we begin to love Jesus more than all three. We don't doesn't mean that we love the other three less, but it means somehow through the love of Jesus, we love those other three things more. But by the third time Jesus asks Peter, he understands something really profound. He understands that where Peter fully denied Jesus, that Jesus is going to fully restore him. He he knows that where Peter has been faithless, that Jesus is going to be faithful. And he knows that where Peter's love was weak. Do you ever feel that? That your love to Jesus is so weak. Like, it is so easily broken. I don't know. I, I feel that, that my love to Jesus is not what it should be. It's so weak, and yet Jesus' love for Peter was so strong. Jesus loved Peter, um, was stronger than the weak weak love of Peter. I always think about when I read this passage, I think about one of my favorite scenes. It's a lot of people's favorite scenes in Narnia. It's lying, the witch, in the wardrobe. And you are in the scene where Peter, I mean, where Edmund has uh, totally denied, you know, traded, betrayed Aslan He's gotten, you know, through the Turkish Delight, he's gotten in with the queen, and he's kind of owned her own team queen for a while. And, um, and then Aslan, in that beautiful way, recaptures him. And you remember that scene where the kids are waking up, the other brothers and sisters are waking up in the morning, and they look across the way, and there are Aslan and Edmund having this conversation. And the way that Lewis says it is he says basically it was a conversation he never forgot. And then Aslan said to the rest of them as they caught up with them, here is your brother, and there is no need to talk to him about what has passed. And it was funny because I was, I was reading this today, and I was kind of reading, you know, everyone wonders, what did he, what did Aslan say to Edmund? Like, there's actually, you, you, the Internet, I shouldn't be surprised at the Internet anymore, but there are these beautiful nerd uh, blogs devoted to Narnia, just, like, guessing this question. So I was, like, reading this incredible thread on, what did Aslan say to Edmund on the shore? It was amazing. And most people think the, the popular consensus is, I never thought of this before That Aslan was actually telling Edmund That it was okay Because Aslan was about to go die for him And that's what most <laughs> uh, fan, Narnia fans believe uh, Was going on with Edmund and Aslan But it's a beautiful idea That, you know, it's definitely true Even if it's not true for Aslan and Edmund It's definitely true for Peter and Jesus And can you hear Jesus saying Peter, Peter It's okay because I've already gone to the cross for you. Peter, it's okay because though that moment by the first fire is forgiven because I paid for it, that moment is past. That moment is I'm going to restore you and I can restore you because of what I've already done for you. I've given my life for you. So lastly, what does this mean for us? What do we do with this? Let me just do it two ways. If you're a Christian and if you're not yet a Christian, let's just do it like that. (laughs) First, if you are a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, you love Jesus, even if you feel frail in your love for Jesus, it means a couple things. Here's the first. The first thing, Christian, is you can never, ever, 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 ever lose his love for you. Um, here's the reality. You never did anything to win his love in the first place. You can't do anything now to lose it. This is a radical truth of the gospel. Uh, we say all the time, you were so bad that Jesus had to die for you, yet you were so loved he was glad to die for you. And we can say that part of the security that you have now in the love of Jesus, this is why my wife, as much as I love her and, I, and she loves me, but part of why that love fails, it fades, it can't hold the weight of my identity is because she can't say, I will never, ever, 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 ever stop loving you. There's only one person that can say that to you, and his name is Jesus. Um, there's a passage in Isaiah 49 where he com- the Lord compares his love to this. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? And he says, even these may forget, and yet I will not forget you. There's another place in Isaiah where he says, you know, Jesus has tattoos, and those tattoos are our names written in his hands. And he pleads his sacrifice looking at our beloved names on his hands as he prays for us even now you can never lose the love of jesus for you you can never do anything to lose his love and here's the second thing is jesus is so committed to i love the way keller says this transforming you into what keller would call your future glory self he's so committed into t- to turning simon into peter remember when we met simon jesus gives him this nickname of the rock sort of jokingly because simon is not that he's so volatile he's up and he's down and he's crazy he's impulsive and yet jesus is committed to this future glory self of peter who's going to become or as we look in the next two weeks this rock for the church because of the love of jesus in his life um jesus does that in his life and he's doing that in yours he's turning you he's taking everything bad and good right now and he's making it. he's molding you into your future glory self what you're going to be what you're going to be even as you make progress in this life, but what you're especially going to be as he invites you into breakfast in the new heavens and the new earth. And here's the, the so that's if you're a Christian, but if you're not a Christian or not yet a Christian, um, first of all, we're, we're glad you're here. This is a place for you. But here's what it means. Uh, I can't do better. There's one of my favorite writers, her name is Anne Lamott, and I've, I've used this before, but I love it so much. I haven't used it in a while. Where she talks about what it was like to be converted. Uh, she kind of loved this really wild um, Just sexual life, liberal life in all kinds of ways And an indulgent life And then she became a Christian And no one has written more honestly about it Here's what she writes about it, it's in her handout She said, I I did not mean to be a Christian I've been very clear about that My first words upon encountering the presence of Jesus For the first time 12 years ago Were I swear to God I would rather die I really would have rather died at that point Than to have my wonderful, brilliant, left-wing non-believer friends Know that I had begun to love Jesus I think they would have been less appalled if I had developed a close personal friendship with Strom Thurmond. At least there is some reason to believe that Strom Thurmond is a real person, you know, more or less. But I never felt like I had much choice with Jesus. This is what I love. He was relentless. I didn't experience him so much as the hound of heaven, as the old description has it, as the alley cat of heaven, who seemed to believe that if, I just, that if it just keeps showing up, mewing outside your door, you'll eventually... Uh, you'd eventually open up and give him a bowl of milk Of course as soon as you do The next thing you know He's sleeping in your bed every night And stepping on your chest at dawn To play a little push-push I resisted as long as I could Like Sam I am and green eggs and ham I would not, could not in a boat I could not, would not with a goat I do not want to follow Jesus I just want expensive cheeses or something Anyway, he wore me out He won I was tired and vulnerable And he won And I let him in, and this is what I said at the moment of my conversion. I said, F it. Come in. I quit. And I love that because maybe you're hearing like, what does it mean to be a Christian? This is what it means to be a Christian. I quit. I give up on these loves that don't satisfy. And Jesus, there's something about your love that seems so satisfying, that seems so beautiful and so true. I'll close with this. Uh, So Valentine's Day, I mean, I'm not a... I read one person who said I'm a Valentine's Day grump. I kind of relate to that, where it feels like a marketing strategy to get me to buy some stuff that neither me or my wife need. So if you're in for it, great. If you want your husband to be more romantic than that, find someone different than me. That's great. not a huge fan, but the best thing I read today was this, in that vein. St. Valentine, because I did a little research about it I didn't know anything about him. Here's what this guy said. St. Valentine married couples helped Christians escape persecution, and shared the gospel with a Roman emperor who beheaded him. Happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) I thought that was amazing. And then I did some research. turns out it's true. It turns out there are all these stories. One of them is really beautiful. Um, As he was in prison, he really was. He had a passion for the gospel. He had a passion to share the gospel, the love of Jesus. And there's this one story that came out of his life where he was in this jail, and there uh, he was. This one guard was talking to him about the love of Jesus. And this one guy said, "Would you, if if Jesus is real, if the love of Jesus is true, would you pray for my daughter that God would heal her from her blindness?" Don't know if it's true or not. It's a beautiful story. So the jailer or the guard brings his daughter to him. He prays for her, and God does what only God can do, heals her of her blindness. And it said that right before he went was beheaded he wrote this little girl a note presumably about the love of Jesus and he signed it your valentine which is so different right like i can get behind that kind of valentine's day all in and then what i want you see is like the truth of who valentine is is what we're talking about he was so captivated by the love of Jesus he's willing what to die like peter he he, he what did he know? It wasn't, like, the end of this isn't go be like Valentine. That's not the end. The end is, have you, have you seen a love of Jesus that is that amazing that you could see yourself like someone like Valentine in your own little way, in my own little way? Someone so captivated and moved by the love of Jesus, the love behind all the loves we're looking for. Let's pray to him tonight. Uh, Jesus, would you... Uh, Show us the greatness of your love. Um, Some of us have heard it so much, but would you just make it real to us? Um, Let us taste and see that you are good. We've heard it all our lives in church, but it means nothing to us if we're being honest. Would you uh, help us wrestle with that? Why does it mean nothing to us? Uh, Some of us uh, take it for granted. Would you forgive us? Is there a worse sin against you than to use your love as a motivation to sin? Would you forgive us for the twistedness of our hearts? Uh, Would you meet us uh, in the ways that we need to be met? Would you encourage us and rebuke us? Would you tear down our pride and build us up in humility and love? We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen.